Please stand with me for the reading of the whole text. My text is Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Matthew 9, 1 through 9. And he entered into a ship, passed over and came into his own city, and behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be a good shepherd, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, seven stripes said within himself, this man blasphemed. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Where will it be evil in your hearts? For what is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that he may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then said he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed. He rose and he departed to his house. When the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto him. Verse 9 is my focus tonight. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the seat of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, because of your grace and mercy, we can testify that the foundation upon which our faith rests is this that God was in Christ. Reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Father, we thank you that the great fact on which our faith relies is that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and that Christ also has suffered for sin the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, who himself bear our sin in his own body on the tree. For as the prophet said, the chastisement of all peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Father, we affirm with our reservation tonight that the great pillar of our hope is the doctrine of substitution. The vicarious sacrifice of Christ for the guilty. Christ being made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ offered up a true and proper expiatory and substitutionary sacrifice in the room, in the place, in the stead of as many as the Father gave to him. Who are known to God by name and are recognized in their own hearts by their trust in Christ. This is the cardinal fact of the gospel that we cherish. Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. 
But if this foundation were removed, what, 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 what could we do? But we thank people to stand firm, just as their throne stands firm. We know it, we rest upon it, we rejoice in it, and our delight is to hold it, to meditate it, upon it, and to proclaim it, while we desire to be moved by gratitude every day of our life. Father, you have been pleased to allow for your own purposes many in our generation, many of the ungodly around us, to attack the doctrine of the atonement. We're witnessing men and women uh, they just cannot bear the doctrine of substitution. They gnash their teeth at the thought of the Lamb of God bearing the sin of man. But we who know by experience the preciousness of this truth, we commit ourselves afresh to proclaim it in defiance of them. We, we will declare it confidently. We will declare it unceasingly, O Lord. Father, we pledge that we will neither dilute it or change it or fit it away in any shape or fashion. Father, our only message will still be Christ, a positive substitute, bearing human guilt and suffering in the stead of sinners. We cannot, we dare not give it up, for it is our life. Thank you for saving us. Hear our prayer, we pray in your Son's name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As I mentioned to you, the focus verse of the text is verse 9, and I read it again, and Jesus passed forth from thence. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. I have entitled the message tonight, The Radical Christ. The Radical Christ. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, there is a romantic fascination in our generation with the revolutionary personality. The radical. Go down the Caribbean islands and uh, even South America and you'll see the statues in the city center. Huh? The people who stood up, stood against the status quo. Hmm. In Antigua Barbica, we have one on Independence Drive that we have as a national hero called King Court or Prince Class, which was a slave who led a rebellion. Um, even before his emancipation. And of course, he was caught and cut in two. They stretched him and cut him in two. And they burned his associates. So, we have him as a national hero. Because even though all the others were against him, he stood up and fought against the status quo. Hmm. We have this romantic fascination with these figures, people who are selfless. We gravitate towards the person with the charisma, the eloquence, the courage, the vision to challenge the status quo and change the trajectory of where things are going. We memorialize them 
call of Matthew, one of the original disciples of Christ. However, our focus is not on this particular disciple of Christ, but on the one who called him. You can even look at how Jesus called him and see that you have the radical Christ. Now I know you may have read past the verse before, but I want you to focus now. Mm. In this single verse, we have at least three snapshots of the nature of the Christ who calls men and women to be his disciples. What is it about Christ that makes him a radical? Who revolutionizes the lives of his followers? What is it? Why is the life of a true Christ follower able to take on the characteristic of one who has been radicalized? In what specific ways can disciples of Christ be considered radicals? What exactly motivates and drives the radicalization of many of Christ's disciples while others remain passive and indifferent? Why is it that some people are so passionate and they want to do everything for the cause of Christ and others are like, oh, oh whatever. Of course, our contemporary context with Islamist radicalization forces us to define our use of the term. I know that I have to cross your line. By radicals, we do not refer to anything close to the ends of the death cult of the Islamists. We refer to the life-transforming boldness and focus and discipline and outlook of one who is a recipient of the love of Jesus Christ. We speak of radical Christian love and the expected effects of the same. Why is it that many people who profess belief in Christianity and say that they understand Christianity do not live lives that are radical for Christ? Why? Why are they so often bogged down with small and insignificant matters? You notice that the idea of church membership as a covenant relationship has gone out in our generation. That is what we're trying to recover in the Reformed churches. It's a covenant relationship. When you gather and unite in a covenant, is that something you just walk away from? You think in terms of family, not in terms of commerce. Covenant, not consumer. Come on now. and buy some bread and the bread is stale. I am uh, not going back there. I want back my money, really. You understand what I'm saying? I move to another bread shop because that's commerce. But if I go home and the bread stale, why am I going to move to another one? Man, you find a solution to the problem. I need to go find fresh bread. I make bread good. Come on, talk to me. Because I'm Because they're like, they're shopping the church, they're like the bread shop, the bakery. No, 
you stay put. You go to nowhere is perfect. There is a good reason to leave a church in the Bible all by them. If, for instance, you have discovered that the church has departed from the truth and not preaching the whole counsel of God, that's a very good reason to, to find a decent church, a real church. Are you following that? But for the flippant, trivial things, insignificant things that people want to leave for, we need to drop that. Why are they so easily immobilized or sidelined by trivial relational squalls? Why are they not running up Hebrews 11. Those heroes live big lives, noble lives, lives of unparalleled greatness. Could it be that many who profess faith in Christ do not really understand Christ or Christianity? Could many people be deluded about the essence of the faith, what it is really about? Listen to me. From the start, let us make this abundantly clear. Biblical Christianity is like nothing else. But you didn't even hear me. I said biblical Christianity is like nothing else. It is like no other thing. Most people imagine that it is basically like other religions. However, the whole point of this passage is for us to grapple with the fact that the Lord Jesus says in effect, what I bring to you, my message, is absolutely unique, absolutely unprecedented, absolutely different. biblical Christian has had a sense of being awakened from a kind of sleep. Uh, you didn't even hear me. Let me say it again. Hmm? I said, everyone who has become a true biblical Christian has had a sense of being awakened from some kind of sleep. When you really get saved, you feel like you just woke up. At one point, you thought you understood Christ. You thought then all of a sudden, a light goes on. You can hear yourself saying, without loud or in your thoughts, you can hear yourself saying, wow, this is radical. This is different. Mm. Now that is the point of this passage. In the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Colossians, Colossians 1.6, he wrote of the gospel, quote, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. Hmm. Did you get it? Did you get it? Have you processed that? He basically says that the gospel began to bear fruit in you on the day you really understood the grace of God in all its truth. When you understood it, he did not say that it was on the day that you signed a card to join the church or filled out the form or came down the aisle. He did not even say that it was on the day that you got baptized. But that does not make anyone a biblical Christian. Baptism is like your wedding ring. It's announcing something. Hmm? It's a symbolic announcement. It doesn't make you a Christian. Something has to happen on the inside. Something radical has to happen. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's time that we stop asking the wrong questions. 
But we need to stop asking questions about religious ceremonies and start asking about regenerating change. We need to stop asking about church conveniences and start asking about the church covenant. We need to stop asking about political differences and start asking about powerful prayer because we really believe the latter brings about greater change than politics. Come on now. We need to stop asking about marriage problems and start asking about marriage promises, covenant. We need to stop asking about preaching styles and start asking about pulpit substance. We need to stop asking about a relaxed Christ who just wants to make you happy and start asking about the radical Christ who is committed to making you holy. Our Lord Jesus made the same point in the parable of the sword in Matthew chapter 13. In that famous parable, our Lord tells a story about the sower who goes out and sows seed in his field. Some of them fall on four different kinds of ground. You remember the, story, the parable, right? Four different kinds of ground. On one plot of ground, there is no growth because they fell away on the wayside. Right? And there are two other plots of ground where there is temporary growth. The stony places and among the thorns. Hmm? On the last plot of ground, it's called good ground. There is permanent, full, and solid growth. Then our Lord Jesus explains the parable by saying, in effect, the seed is the word of God, the true message of Christianity. Now, on the first plot of ground, the wayside, the reason why it never grows is because the word is rejected. On the second and third plot of ground, the stony places and the thorny, among the thorns, there is temporary growth. That is because they receive the word without serious consideration. Now concerning the fourth plot of ground, listen to our Lord's words in Matthew 13, 23. I quote, But he that received the seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some a hundred, some sixty, and some thirty. <laughs> you know that's a pretty radical thing. If you were listening carefully, you would hear it. That's a pretty radical thing. What I would is saying is that if you are not seeing this amazing growth, if you're not seeing what he describes in the parable as growth that is tenfold, fiftyfold, a hundredfold, it's not because. Is a total 
rejection of the religious status quo, the self-righteous spiritual authorities and conventions. It's revolutionary. It is actually designed for those who consider themselves to be wicked sinners. Wow! His gospel is designed for wicked sinners. It will never be welcomed by the so-called good people. <laughs> the people who are the most respected in the society. This holy passage tells us, tells us exactly what a real Christian is. A real Christian is someone who has been called. <laughs> We're talking about the call of Matthew, right? I said a real Christian is someone who has been called. Someone who is a disciple and someone who has been made utterly new. So, what is a real Christian? A real Christian is someone who has had the same experience as Matthew. What is Matthew's experience? Let me read it again. Let me read verse 9 again and you see Matthew's experience. And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. That's it. It's as simple as that. That's it. He said, well, I don't hear anything radical, Pastor. And you're not listening, man. You, you're not paying attention. That is radical stuff. Listen. You are not a Christian unless you have, like Matthew, experienced a call. You have to be called. That's why I say it's almost like waking up from a sleep, you know. You have to be called. You're not a Christian unless you are aware that you have been called. Christianity is not something that you take up. It is something that takes you up. I think you're catching on now. I think you're catching on. I think you're catching on. You have to be called. This is one of the main ways in which you can tell whether you are on the right path. You will have a sense of being worked on. <laughs> Somebody working on me. A question is someone who is called. You find out somebody working on you. You mind your own business and something going on. Something special is going on inside of you. What does that mean? What does that mean? First of all, we have to be very careful not to assume that God always works in exactly the same way with everyone and in every life. If we go back to the beginning of this chapter, we will notice a very interesting narrative. So I want to read for you the narrative again from verse 1 to 8. And I want you to follow this carefully. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. Verse 2. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, what? Be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven. And behold, certain of the scribes said to themselves, This man blasphemed this man blasphemeth. <laughs> and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye in your hearts? Think ye evil in your hearts? For which is easier? Which is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, 
arise and walk. But as they know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now, now let's work on this. It is very important to pay close attention to what is happening in this narrative. On the surface, it appears that our Lord Jesus' dealings with the paralytic and his dealings with Matthew are totally different. Come on. It looks alright that how he dealt with Matthew when he called him and how he dealt with his paralytic, it looks different, doesn't it? As we scan the synoptic gospels, more information is given on this passage in, in Matthew and Luke than in Mark. The paralytic had a number of friends. You got that much, right? We're told in Matthew and Luke that they were trying to get into the house where Jesus was preaching. And there they were trying, but there were so many people around that they, they couldn't get in. They couldn't get in the house. So, they took matters in their own hands and went up on the roof, tore up the roof of the house. <laughs> what is this from your time? Tore up the roof of the house. In order to let him down in front of Jesus. I wonder what the owner of the house must have thought. Hmm? They tore up the roof, lowered the man down in front of Jesus. Now, the paralytic and his friends were in hot pursuit of Jesus. I think we're safe to, safe to say that, can't we? Come on, talk to me. Can we say that? They were in hot pursuit of Jesus. Now compare and contrast that in Matthew's case now. Matthew was not looking for Jesus. Matthew was a customs officer and he was at work. He was at his desk collecting and recording the taxes required by the foreign occupying power, the Romans, okay? He was minding his own business. Matthew wasn't looking for Jesus. The paralytic and his friends were looking for Jesus. Suddenly, somebody shows up and says to Matthew, follow me. Matthew did not expect this. He was not looking for this. He wasn't praying for this. The Lord Jesus just came up to him and gave him an order. Follow me. Boy, this is radical stuff. Does our Lord have a different modus operandi for different people or does he deal with everyone in the same way? We have to be very careful about standardizing Christian experience. Actually, we really shouldn't do it at all. Some of us come to Christ in a crisis. Come on. While others come in a time of calm reflection. Some come to Christ after careful study and investigation, while others come to Christ in a sudden emotional experience. It's different from different people. Some people are convinced that it is important to publicly respond in a church meeting like walking down to the front, while others see the proper public profession of faith to be believers' baptism. Clearly, there are variations in expression. However, there are some fundamental commonalities. Mm. Let us discuss them on the three headings and then I'll sit down, okay? All right, number one, the radical power of Christ. 
Number two, the radical person of Christ. And number three, the radical pull and promise of Christ. Are you with me? Let's deal with the first one. That's what? The radical power of Christ. I'm looking at the first part there of verse 9 and pulling a phrase from it. In the first part of verse 9, he says, He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs. Stop there. The radical power of Christ. Matthew, just like every true believer in Christ, sends a power coming into his life from outside, taking charge of his life. Somebody walked to him and gave him an order. He was minding his own business, doing his work. Listen to me, when we are saved, we are not on an expedition of discovery. We are actually being subjected to an invasion. I can't stay with me now. Huh? Real Christianity of God. You're not searching. <laughs> You're not on an expedition of discovery. You are being invaded. It soon becomes clear that the hunter is being hunted. Matthew was in the cross years of Christ. When you get saved, that's what you, you, you begin to understand. God is after you. You are in his cross years. <laughs> Lord Jesus saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of customs. What actually happens is that the Lord Jesus just walks in and takes charge. That's what happens when you really get saved. Jesus swats in and takes charge. We immediately sense that we are not actually in charge of this spiritual experience and pursuit. This is why we speak of being called. <laughs> called. You are summoned by an external power. You, you can't explain this thing, but it's happening. You feel like you have to do this. Some necessity is laid upon you. Other people can just walk away, but you can't think of anything else. You have to follow this Christ. There's a power coming over you. Now, this is quite obvious in Matthew's case. Matthew was minding his own business, and his duties were suddenly interrupted. But what about the case of the paralytic? I asked you that before. But what about that case? Was the paralytic also drafted like Matthew? Was he summoned to? I know you weren't thinking in those categories, but yes, he was. Please notice that the paralytic was not in hot pursuit of the Jesus that he found. <laughs> I said he was not in hot pursuit of the Jesus that he found. He was looking for another Jesus. He was looking for a miracle worker, a magician. He was sick. And he and his friends had heard that Jesus was a miracle worker. He thought that Jesus was going to heal him. So he came down with the help of his friends. And there was Jesus. They lowered him in front of Jesus. He looked up at Jesus. And what did Jesus say? Your sins are forgiven. What? What kind of foolishness is that? Your sins are forgiven. He must have thought, that's not what I came here for. You see, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is not bothering what he came for. Jesus had him in the cross years. 
Give it just like that. <laughs> the Lord said what you said. Hmm? The paralytic thought he was in charge, but he was dead wrong. Like everyone who is religious, the paralytic thought that, 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 that he was the one who was seeking Jesus. That's what he thought. Hello, please remember what the Apostle Paul wrote. Made abundantly clear in Romans 3 and verse 11, which is actually based on Psalm 14, 1 to 3, that no sinner really seeks God. There is none that seeketh after God. Anyone who has ever taken a kind of active spiritual search for the true and living God discovers along the way that the one that they were looking for does not have the identity of the God of the Bible. The paralytic was not looking for the Messiah. He was looking for Allah. They were searching for God. Everybody who was seeking after God so far, they seek, they're, they're searching for a God that they personally designed, a figment of their idolatrous imagination. However, the minute that, that we learn of the attributes and identity of the triune revelation of the true and living God, we will sense that our former search was a farce. We will sense that we were the object of another search. We will sense that we, we, we were after a false God, but the real God was after us. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We were searching for what we are looking for, but the real God was coming after us. To be called is to experience an alien power at work in your life. I said alien. If you do not have that sensation, if you do not sense that somebody is after you, if you do not sense that something radical is going on inside of you, if you do not sense anything like this, then it is clear that you're not experiencing biblical Christianity. Because those who come to Christ are convinced I have to do this. I know I'm going to get in trouble, especially with those around me, but I have to do an alien power has taken over my life. <laughs> if you have not been truly called, you will either continue to play little religious games or you will eventually hold Christianity in contempt. This is why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish what? Foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. When you experience the call, you will get it. You will know that you will never be the same again for necessities laid upon you. You know that you have been arrested. Come on. That's what happens when you call. You realize, I have to go. You have no interest in resisting the arrest. <laughs> and you actually thank the one who executed the world. <laughs> you know you've been arrested by the Holy Ghost when you have waived your right to be silent. For you must now shout it from the rooftops. You know you've been arrested for you already have an attorney. The advocate. 
to be a delightful slavery. You know you've been arrested for with Christ in the boat, you know, smiling at the storm, for you sense on the inside a joy unspeakable and full of glory. <laughs> the radical power of Christ. Hmm. What's number to know? The radical person of Christ. I'm looking at the next phrase in verse 9, which says what? And he said unto him, what? Come on, y'all, looking at it, man. I'd I, I like to tell my members in Antigua, don't trust me here. Check me out. Okay. What are you following going on here? And he said unto him, what? Follow me. That's all we need. The radical person of Christ. Matthew quickly says, just like all who experienced saving faith in Christ, that he was being confronted with a person. He was being confronted with a person. Not just a lot of intellectual ideas or an ethical code. A person. The Lord Jesus had walked into his life and said to him, What? Follow me. Jesus did not say, follow that. He didn't say, follow this. He said, follow me. The real Jesus Christ is always confrontational and focused on his purpose and person. Now, this is not a narcissistic self-focus. It was a disciplined pursuit of a very narrow agenda. It is what I call a holy self-centeredness. A holy man. Okay, why, why must we call it a holy self-centeredness? If the answer to man's sinful choices, if the answer to man's sinister inheritance is divine atonement, the focus must be then on the sacrificial lamb. Why is he going to focus on? If Jesus is the answer, you have to focus on him. He's not being narcissistic. If he is the way, the truth, and the light, then he is the way, the truth, and the light. You have to focus on him. Christ must be the focus. He lovingly has always called attention to the only answer to man's sinful condition, which is his holy person. His holy person. Real Christianity is about the radical person of Christ, period. It's about a person. Just listen to the Christ and you'll see everything he says is really about this holy self-centeredness. Listen to the questions he asked in Matthew 16 when he asked his disciples in verse 13, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Or even in verse 15, Whom do ye say that I am? It's a holy self-centeredness. Consider the narrative in Acts chapter 9 of our Lord's encounter with the terrorists. You know, you know, he met the terrorists. You know, you know, you know that one. Who is that? Saul of Tarsus. Yes, man, he was a terrorist. Hmm? Boy, the Lord has a sense of humor. The Lord is about to call a preacher, a messenger of his. And instead of looking inside the church, he goes and arrests a terrorist and turns him into an apostle. What okay. the Lord has a sense of humor. <laughs> All right. So, the Lord has this encounter with the terrorist Saul of Tarsus. This man just went around killing Christians. He wanted to wipe them out, all right? Now, 
He appeared to Saul. Saul had been persecuting the church, killing the Christians. But what exactly did our Lord say to Saul? Acts chapter 9 and verse 4. Hmm? <laughs> he cried from heaven, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul, you persecuted me. It's a radical self-centeredness. It's a holy self-centeredness. You know, this is an unmistakably unmistakable, radical, and holy self -centered. Listen to the Christ again. Look at in John chapter 8 and verse 58. He said, before Abraham was, what? Huh? I am. And we know that's just in more than the first person singular. <laughs> that, that's a divine statement. Huh? In John 10 and verse 9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. John 10, 14, he says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. In John 10, 30, he says, I am the father of one. In Matthew 11, 27, he says, all things are delivered unto me of my father. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Another particularly striking text is Luke 14, 26, when he said, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brethren, and sisters, yea, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Homosexuality. Oh, 
Christian view of the use of cannabis. Some jurisdictions want to legalize it. Or what's the Christian view of the growth of human trafficking or same-sex so-called marriage or whatever? People, you know, reporters calling me all the time. You know, I'm on television in Antigua. You know, what is Pastor Jonas? We need a statement from you on what is happening with this and that and the other. I would say, let me call you back. And then I begin to think about how I'm going to call them back, you know? And what I'm going to say to them. <laughs> Usually they are disappointed because I'm not answering their question. They say, Pastor Jonas, don't you have a responsibility as a prominent pastor to give the Christian view on the homosexual thing or on this question and the cannabis or Bible, my Prime Minister asked me the question because they actually think of thinking of following Jamaican to this foolishness, you know, legalizing cannabis. Anyway, so you ask me, my pastor, let me hear your views on this, this question. Anyway, I'm not going to do that right now. They want to know the church's policy concerning, say, movies or a variety of artistic productions. They delineate a plethora of issues that they think are pressing and they think these issues are urgent. So just what are we, who are biblical Christians, to say to all of this? Actually, the best answer is, my friend, with all due respect, who cares? <laughs> now, I know some of you are expecting me to walk that back, right? Huh? <laughs> I'm walking it back. I'm serious. The best answer is, who cares? You heard right? Listen to me. All of the above are trivial concerns if you have not addressed the most crucial question. Hmm. So, what is the most crucial question? We must all ask, is Jesus who he said he is? That is the most crucial question. The person of Christ. Is Jesus who he said he is? That's it! You see, if the Lord Jesus is who he said he is, then he is the authority on every other issue. Okay, now, we're coming somewhere now. Hmm? <laughs> if he who is who he said he is, then your opinion or your feelings or my opinion and my feelings and attitude are all irrelevant. If Jesus is indeed Lord, eventually everyone else has to bow in his presence. So don't get me involved in all the debates. I want to stay on the main question. Is Jesus who he said he is? Because if Jesus is who he said he is, you, you, you know the answer to all the other questions. Because all you have to do is check out what he said. <laughs> Can you ask your body is the temple? Oh. Huh? Oh, what did I want to say? Homosexuality? Oh, give me a break. That's so obvious. Huh? What did I want? You heard some of the issues I said, some of them. Huh? Uh, whatever. If Jesus is who he said he is, he is the authority on all the issues. So I don't have to come up with the church's response to this or that. All I want to know is who is this Jesus to you? Because if he is Lord, he's the one who's going to answer all the questions. 
Listen, all debates about the various social or political issues are futile unless you establish the criteria for deciding on what exactly is the correct path. Where or what is your authority? Are those with the might always right? Is it a situational ethic? Is it all about trying to make sense out of an existential absurdity? Is it all about materialism, whether dialectical or capitalistic? Where is your authority? What is your authority? Biblical Christianity says, before you can get to any of that, first things first, just who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this person? who has the audacity to walk into a man's life and demand that a man abandon his career, change his worldview, reschedule his calendar, realign his relationships, and change his ambitions. Matthew, follow me. What kind of thing? That's a radical Jesus is radical. You, you didn't even hear me. You all heard me? You heard what he did to Matthew? All you heard is follow me, but you didn't, you, when you were reading it first, you didn't realize what follow me meant. Follow me means, Matthew, get up from that table at the customs office. Abandon your career. Change your worldview. Reschedule your calendar. Realign your relationships. Change your ambitions. Just who is this person? This is a radical person. He says, follow me. It is possible for you to miss the heart of biblical Christianity even if you have explored many issues like creation and evolution or miracles and healing or whatever. Listen to me. If the Holy Spirit is really after you, if you are really encountering the real Jesus, what he says to you is, follow me. Finally, my brethren, the radical pull 
looking at the phrase in the last phrase in verse 9. Hmm? Look at it. It says, And he arose and followed. And he arose and followed him. Oh, what a powerful text. And he arose and followed him. The radical pull and promise of Christ. Let me tell you something. There is such a magnetic pull to the radical promise of Christ that true believers have to get up. They have to rise up and follow Him. It's a radical call to respond to a radical promise, a mission of eternal redemption. You know, it seems to be pretty obvious that the Lord Jesus already was acquainted with Matthew. Our Lord called Matthew to a new vocation, a new mission in life. It was a radical call. If you read the narrative, that is, that is a fact. That the promise found in this divine person has a magnetic pull. A call to action that is urgent and irresistible. The phrase, and he arose and followed him, is obviously a summary statement. But that's all that's needed. <laughs> the call was so radical and so compelling that submission seemed like the only responsible and reasonable response. This man wasn't going to ask any questions. Um, before I come, uh, what about the pension plan? You know, um, before I come, you know, uh, do, do we have good insurance? Before I come, uh, well, you know, <laughs> there were no questions. And he rose. Follow him. We know from the prophet Isaiah many centuries before the first advent that the magnetic pull of the promise of the Christ would not be the outward trappings of a personality cult. In other words, people were not going to follow Christ because Christ was charismatic and beautiful. The prophet made that abundantly clear. The prophet Isaiah made it clear that the Christ would not be celebrated, not be welcomed, and not be applauded. So then, how come he has such a pull then? Hmm. According to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the Christ, was not handsome. I read it properly, he was not handsome. He was not some towering personage. He would not have incredible charisma. The prophet told us that hundred years before he came. Don't look for the pretty boy, the tall boy, the bright boy. Don't look for all of these outward trappings. He's king of kings and lord of lords. He's the only potentate. Alright? He's God. But he's not gonna look like that. He's not going to be very ordinary. Centuries later in the life of Christ, the narrative of the passion of Christ in the Gospels had the Roman ruler Pilate basically laughing at the Christ with his sarcastic interrogation. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 2 we read, Art thou the king of the Jews? You hear Pilate? Art thou the king of the Jews? In like manner Pilate asked, the murderous mob, Mark 15:9, will ye that I release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate's sarcasm said in effect, oh, so, so this is the Jesus Christ. I'm really quite surprised. He looks so smart. He doesn't look like a king. Pilate was not impressed. So what then was the basis of this? Ma 
Why was the call answered with such urgency? Why did he just get on the line? Pilate thought this was nothing. Oh, what, what is it? This is, this is the Messiah. Excellent biblical narrative that is helpful here is the story of Mary and her alabaster box of ointment. Remember that story? In John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, Mary had taken an enormously expensive bottle of ointment and perfume and laid it on our Lord Jesus' feet and then wiped his feet with her hair. You know the story? The other people in the room thought that this, 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 this is really ridiculous. This is, this is crazy. They said, in effect, listen, we have nothing against um, respecting the Lord Jesus, listening to his teaching, or even supporting his healing ministry. However, isn't this a bit extravagant? Come on, man. this is a total waste. We're even told that the thieving Judas is carried. Remember him? Because Jesus is the one who told, boy, God has a sense of humor. You know? God made the thief the treasure. Judas Iscariot was the treasurer of the apostolate. <laughs> what a God has a sense of humor. Anyway, we are told in the text that even the thieving Judas Iscariot protested on behalf of the poor, whom he claimed would be, be more appropriate recipients of the money wasted in this act of worship by Mary. Hmm? Of course, the text also reminds us of Judas' real concern was finding more opportunities for that. Okay, <laughs> we're not going there right now. Mary had clearly heard a totalitarian call. She, like Matthew, heard a totalitarian call of Christ that demanded her response. She realized that with Jesus, it's all or nothing. She realized it with Jesus, it's what? She gave herself to him utterly, just like Matthew did. Our Lord Jesus defended her. You remember? He defended her and her act of love. He said, let her alone. Against the day of my burying has she kept this. You know, that appears to be a little cryptic kind of statement. However, it was our Lord's way of making it clear that Mary perceived that he was going to die for her. Mm. Mary perceived he was going to die for her. She had sense, as true believers eventually do, that our Lord Jesus was radically committed to her. She figured it out. She got it. He's committed to me. And so she had to demonstrate and communicate her commitment to him. What could she do? She found the best and most expensive thing she had. And she poured it on him. And she had to answer him. She knew Jesus was committed to her. She had to find a way to communicate that Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my all. She didn't care what the rest of them thought about it. She took her perfume, her ointment, and she all over Jesus. 
Listen, folks, a true sense of the active and passive obedience of Christ on our behalf is enough to make you rise up and follow him. It's enough to make you abandon everything, throw all caution to the wind to follow him. This is the ultimate tugging in a person's heart. The knowledge that Christ kept the law perfectly for you. Come on, living the life for us that we should have lived. And dying the ultimate death, paying the price for our infinite death of sin. He did it for us. The death we should have paid in hell forever. Come on. When we understand that, it is enough to overwhelm our heart. Because our heart will have been prepared by the Holy Ghost. We're so overwhelmed. We are pulled to abandon everything for him. My goodness. We have to we find the field. We have to sell all we have to buy it. <laughs> Jesus is the pearl of great price. This is the knowledge that made Matthew get off and follow him. What courage? What courage? What woman? What? 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 If there's a woman, what woman? You better come because I'm gone. Now look, you almost look crazy when you come to Christ. Because people don't understand that you have to go. It's a radical, magnetic pull. When we truly understand just who it is who called us and what he has done for us, we have to get up. We have to sell everything. We have to take up our cross. We have to surrender all in order to follow him. We become convinced that it is worth it to give all to him when we learn that he has given his all for us. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, we are told that our Lord Jesus has answered the call of God the Father. Hmm. It is written there. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, for the volume of the book it is written on me, to do thy will, O God. Y'all got it? God the Father had called our Lord Jesus, who is God the Son. And our Lord Jesus said in effect, here I am, I'm ready. The point here is that whatever it would cause us to answer the totalitarian call, whatever it would take for us to rise up and follow Christ without reservation, is actually nothing in comparison to what it cost Jesus to atone for our sins. That's what's going on in our head. We get it. In other words, I have to walk away from everything to follow this Jesus because what? It's nothing compared to what he walked away from to save me. Just think of the condescension involved. Think of the condescension involved with leaving the honor and splendor and glory of heaven. Come on, man. Making himself of no reputation. I'm talking about the kenosis. Hmm? Taking the form of a servant, a slave, 
dying on a cross. Who is it? God. God the Son. <laughs> Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Once you get it, you have to come. <laughs> it's a magnetic pull. You have to get up and follow him. Mm. His condescension in the incarnation, his humiliation, his emptying of himself. In short, his active and passive obedience demands that we get up and write a commitment to follow him and worship him. What did he do? What did he do? Jesus stood between sinners and eternal destruction. What did he do? Jesus took the wrath of divine justice upon himself for us. What did he do? Jesus endured the most egregious mockery and humiliation for us. What did he do? Jesus volunteered a good measure of subordination to perfect our liberation. What did he do? Jesus took what we deserve to give us what only he deserved. Let's be honest. Left to ourselves, we're neither brave nor courageous in the face of pain. Speak the truth. Speak the truth. I said left to ourselves, we're neither brave nor courageous in the face of pain, in the face of discomfort, in the face of terror. We prefer to take the line of least resistance. We prefer to run away. But when we think of this goodness and all that he has done for us, our souls Behold him. 
far beyond the skies. 